Hey, everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lees with another episode of the Surfing Sales Podcast. This one's going to be different. Uh, we're super excited. I'll let Scott explain that in a minute. But first, we need to give a shout out to our sponsors of Scratchpad, Sendoso, and Outreach. Uh, please check out all of them as you look to grow your organization, do something different, stand out, be unique as you reach out to your prospects and even your employees, particularly, I think Sendoso is probably pretty cool for that. Send your, send your employees a little something, show them you care, show them you, you love them. Um, and also if you're going to go check out outreach, go to click.outreach.io, click.outreach.io. Um, be sure to check them out. Uh, we appreciate their support all the time. Don't forget the surf and sales event. It is happening. Yes. There's one spot left for May, uh, May the 10th. So, we know that people are getting their bonus checks this month, right, Scott? Like the last week of the month, usually like the 15th or 30th. That's of right. April. Yeah. So there's got to be one spontaneous absolute revenue person out there. Absolutely. And the, the best part is you won't even miss it because it never really hits your bank account. Like it'll just, you know, it's an investment in you. So go check that out. We'd love to have you. If you can't come to May, by all means, come to one of the two in November. So Zach, you could be one of those folks. Uh, without further ado, I'll turn it over to Scott, who then will tell us what's happening. Yeah, so um, this podcast came about in kind of a fun way. I got a message on LinkedIn from Zach, uh, kind of just asking a little bit about who I am, what I do, and think wanting to kind of talk a little bit about what he does and see if there was any way for us to maybe do something together. And he was looking to, um, you know, get some time to talk to me. And my response back was something to the effect of, oh, God, I am so busy. Like, I don't have any time to chat. Like, I'm sorry, man. You know, and he replied, no worries. You know, maybe down the road we find time to chat. And then I had this idea. I'm like, well, what if you just come on the Surf and Sales podcast and we can meet for the first time, get to know each other a little bit, have some interaction. And then, you know, that'll kind of set the stage. We'll have a little bit of a relationship and maybe, you know, from there, we can figure out if there's ways to help each other. And so he said he's game for it. And so here we are. I think the funny thing is, I think people are going to listen to it and I'll go ahead and say it. Yeah. Just let us know. We'll send you the link. We'll talk to anybody. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. It saved, it saved us. It saved us a massive uh, uh, challenge of like, how do we schedule people? Right. So um, Yeah. Right. All those like, uh, Hey, I'd love to pick your brain for yes. you know, 15 minutes. Oh, sure. I've already got time booked. Uh, every week for that it's called the podcast episodes so anyway welcome to the show zach hey, happy to be here i appreciate the uh invite and <laughs> glad we we're able to find some time to connect well tell everybody including us who you are what you do what the company's all about what kind of sales cycle you play in and all that kind of good stuff yeah absolutely uh so zach scalzi been in the uh software game now for almost 10 years uh came out out of college got into the uh standard bullpen of cold calls for 200 300 calls a day over the last 10 years been uh working up going from smb to mid-market to enterprise uh last gig i was the sales director for a smaller company that actually just got acquired back in november um, so after that acquisition i popped over to my new home which is uh, gondola.a which is a sales enablement tool um, but really, the reason we re reached out was just uh, seeing all the work that you've done, all the different uh, companies you've helped on the go-to-market side. Just want to kind of pick your brain on how your thought process works and, you know, how you kind of establish what steps need to take place to get things set up for uh, success there. 
I think Scott, we're going to have to go through a name change and we'll just change it to pick your to pick your brain with Scott and Richard. <laughs> yeah, the Pick Your Brain podcast. That's, that's actually not a bad podcast name. By the way. Yeah, it isn't a bad one at so, all. So, so I, I want to I want to ask ahead, you a couple questions first. So what, you go. I know you changed the name, but maybe people know the old name. So want to tell folks what the old name was? Yeah, absolutely. It was a company called Demoflow. Was yep. the old name? Yeah, got it. Cool, uh, Scott. I know you were going to jump in and start asking questions, so go for it. Yeah. Uh, so tell everybody what the software is and does. Yeah. So a little bit of background. Um, so originally when the company was uh, founded, we called it Demoflow. Uh, Demoflow was more on the presentation side of things, a way to collaborate with solutions engineers, AEs, SDRs, uh, execs all on one call, um, kind of eliminating like the whiplash that tends to happen when you're bouncing between like slides, open portal views and all the different assets you kind of manage throughout the presentation. Um, but over the last couple of months, we've seen a little bit of a different niche in the market that we wanted to start applying towards, which is more of like the full cycle uh, sales enablement tool. And great demos often start with great discovery. So our product kind of naturally navigated towards that earlier on sales cycle where we started in creating like infrastructure for discovery and qualification calls that allow us to further enable that solutions engineer uh, and the end presenter on those demonstrations. I love that line of great demos start with great discovery. Like that's massively quotable because so many people are terrible at demos, right? Terrible. <laughs> demos become product training all of a sudden. Yeah. And I, I try to tell people all the time, it's like, look, if you go test drive a new car, you're not trying to program the radio stations. Like that's not what you're trying to do. So don't make your demo about programming the radio stations. And people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So uh, well, cool. So what, what were your questions? You know, you said, I want to talk to Scott about stuff. Like what kind of questions you want to ask? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, a little bit of personal background, you know, when I've been looking through my career, I've always been kind of building towards this earlier stage startup. And there's a lot of hats to wear as you get earlier on in these software companies. So I just wanted to kind of understand when you're coming in to like, look at a new company and how you can kind of further their go-to-market side of things, you know, where do you start? Where do you kind of tend to reevaluate month over month? Like what is your primary focus when you're looking at like a product market fit of like one of those earlier stages that, you know, you work with on the company side? Yeah, well, the, you said the words, you're trying to establish product market fit. <clears throat> and most places that I've worked um, and many of the companies that I advise don't really even have it yet. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I like playing in that world and kind of proving product market fit and getting in there, you know, that early. So what are you, what are you trying to do when, to prove you have product market fit? Well, you got to figure out who you're supposed to talk to. So let's define that. Let's just say as the ideal customer profile, you know, what, uh, what geography are we selling to? What size company, what type of company, right? How, how many people or how much revenue or what kind of problems and departments maybe they have. All of the, these things would go into an ideal customer profile. From there, who are the buyer personas that we're going to be selling to? And, you know, depending on how complex of the deal it is, there could be lots of folks involved. Uh, if you're selling to SMBs, let's say I'm selling to a small general contracting company or something like that, I might get the owner straight away. If I'm selling to lawyers, I might get a, a secretary and then the uh, owner of the law firm or one of the partners. If I'm selling into a CFO, 
who else do I have to talk to along the way? If I'm selling to a VP of sales, do I have to also talk to their RevOps person, their marketing person, the CEO? All of these would be buyer personas. And so we're trying to figure out who are we going to be talking to and what pains and problems do they have? Yeah. All right. So those are the very first two things. Can I, before you jump into the next one, I want to add something to that, Scott. Yeah, and go I've, ahead. I've been, I've been saying this to clients lately, and I, I'd be curious to both of your opinions. Part of the personas you need to find are who's the most skeptical on the team? Because we know everybody makes a decision with a team decision, right? Unless you're like a solopreneur, right? Like maybe the contractor, but even then, I, so I always say to people, hey, Zach, you know, I know you're going to take this to your team, which is cool. Who's going to be the most skeptical on your team? Because that helps me figure out who I'm going to have to convince the most. And it's often overlooked. We're always looking for the people who make the decisions to buy, but we're, but we know there's going to be roadblockers and stuff imposers, but we never ask the question that directly. So Scott, Zach, what do you think? Do you think it's worthy of asking the question of who's skeptical? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where you all stand on the uh, sales methodology side, but I'm a big fan of the MedPick masterclass. When it goes into defining, you know, who the competition is, a lot of people tend to think of competition as other software, as other people that are in the space. But at the end of the day, competition could be that detractor internally. It could just be business as usual. And so I think when you're outlining, you know, the threats to a deal, outlining the detractor earlier on and understanding what's really important to them, I think really kind of gives you a lot of momentum later on in the deal cycle because you already understand what threats that you're going to need to overcome. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and a inclusion by Richard that makes a ton of sense. It's nothing, I don't call that out as a specific kind of step. I have just bundled that in Richard with, that's part of the, understanding the buyer personas and all that kind of thing, but it's a worthy call out. Um, so if I got through the ICP and I got through the buyer persona, then there's a conversation to be had about the strategy itself. Meaning, are we an outside sales org? Are we an inside sales org? How are we set up? Are we a hybrid of the two? Are we SDRs and enterprise AEs? Are we full cycle AEs? So this is about the structure of the team and how we're going to go about trying to capture new customers. Are we PLG, product-led growth, where everything is hopefully just inbound, right? So that's a structural kind of conversation. And the, the fourth thing, and then I'll kind of pause, um, the thing that comes next is what's our messaging? And messaging is what is the copy and content of our emails and our, and our cadences, what does that look like? What do we say on an inbound call? What's our inbound call script? What's our outbound prospecting cold call script? How do we demo? Which pieces of the product do we show and why? What questions do we ask during the demo to get engagement? How do we handle different objections that are supposed to come? You know, we expect to come our way. Somebody says, well, that costs too much, right? Generic objection. What do we want people to say in response to that? So it's the messaging. So those four things are the first four things that I'm kind of thinking about. So I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and see what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great structure when you're outlining kind of that strategy. But when you're looking at, you know, that strategy, I think there is two different avenues, especially for a lot of newer software companies that can go bottom up or top down, you know, outlining those strategies tends to be almost like independent of each other. 
the messaging that works when you're going for like an individual IC versus somebody that's on the leadership team, it's almost like you're developing two completely different sales approaches that you want to like be able to multi-thread later on in that sales process. So would you agree it's kind of like a different stroke for both of those or is it yeah, something it just, that you kind it, of tend to think it's the same? That's why I was kind of talking about, we got to figure out who our ICP is and who's our um, buyer personas because if it's a, if it's a more complex sale, we're going to need different messages for different people. The things that will resonate with the CFO might not resonate with the VP of sales, this kind of stuff. But if it's a more um, singular kind of buyer, uh, more traditional SMB or more traditional transactional type sale, I don't think you need all these different kind of um, messages and playbooks and approaches and all that kind of stuff because I think it will work pretty well um, at scale to, to go through kind of the, the same way. An another wrinkle to your point, Zach, is what about people who are selling different product lines? In, right? So like I might have uh, a whole methodology and messaging to sell our platform, let's say, but if there's a services component to our business, that might require a whole different kind of playbook. And then do we have the salespeople sell both of these products or do we split the team apart and have Richard lead the services sale and Zach lead the platform sale? And, you know, those two never cross wires, right? So there's, there's all of these questions to be had based on, you know, who, who you, who you are, who you're selling to and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think what a lot of people do is, they don't take the time to put all this down on paper. And I'm a big fan of like, get it out of your head, put it on paper for everybody to see and review. You mentioned earlier, you know, are you looking at it every month and revising it all the time? Some of the things will be living, breathing kind of, you know, documents, objections, competitors. Those are living, breathing things. Some of the other stuff, I think tinkering with it too much will do you a disservice. You know, you lock in on your ICP, for example, and you start tweaking it every single month, then you don't really know what your ICP is. Yeah. I think you lock in on your ICP and your buyer personas and you better sit, stick with it for six months and give it a real go. And then maybe you've learned some things and then you wait, can- Wait, 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 six that. months? You, you think a startup will give you six months to determine the ICP? Don't you think they're going to take about six days and go, oh, oh what I what I said, what I said, What I said was, if you determine- X is your ICP. And then you set out to go to go sell to that group, depending on what type of product uh, and who we're selling to. You can't go tinkering your ICP. If I set you loose to, to sell to an ICP and three weeks later, I'm like, you know what? That's the wrong ICP. Go after this other one over here. We're not getting enough traction. Good luck. That startup is doing so that. That's my question. So my question is, Scott, when you do this and Zach chime in, but when you talk to people, Scott, how often do they try to change this on you? Oh, every couple of weeks. <laughs> and what do you like? And Zach's laughing. So Zach, why are you laughing? Yeah. I mean, the, the cadence of like the six months, once you figure it out to give it at least six months, I mean, the first two months you're scrambling to get the right messaging together. So if you're changing this every week or every other week, I can't imagine like defining clear messaging with an ICP. What, so hap that what happens What happens in what Doom startups all the time is the sales leader comes in and, and the CEO and, and the sales leader are just like desperate for results and traction 
right? And so you decide on this ICP, we're going to sell to, you know, mid-market companies in such in, in North America, right? 500 people plus six-figure deals. And off they go. And in two, three weeks, like they haven't closed any deals. And now all of a sudden the founder is like, you're not closing anybody, you know, why is it, this isn't working. And, and the VP is like, well, if you want me to get, you know, deals faster, I got to go after smaller companies. So, okay, now let's go after smaller companies. They change their ICP. They have to alter all the messaging. They start going after smaller companies, right? And you're just ping ponging all over the place. And then what happens is you might close a couple little deals. And then the CFO and the CEO is like, these little deals are not going to get it done. We need to go after the big deals. And now all of a sudden we're going after the fucking enterprise deals. And Zach, who's the VP of sales, his head is spinning. And when your head spins enough, it falls right off. Yeah. And scene. That's it. That's all you need. There's a Scottism. I'm like, we might have to cut that and make a gif out of it that repeats over and over. Um, yeah. I agree. So Scott, here's my question back to you. Um, and then Zach will get back to you too, I promise. But um, so you have clients who come to you and they try to do this every three or four weeks. What do you sell them? I mean, sorry, not what do you, what do you tell what do them? Sell? Yeah. What do you tell them? What do I tell them? I, I, I tell them what I just told you and everybody who's listening. These are the things that you need to do. This is the amount of time you need to give this to make it a real test. If you change our direction so quickly, every couple of weeks like that, when we're not going to learn anything, we're just going to basically flounder and, and fail. We won't do very good at this. We won't do very good at the second thing. We won't do very good at the third thing. Nobody will be confident in the direction that we're going. That's what I tell them. So you should spend the time at the beginning, really discussing and talking through and locking in on this is who our ICP is and this is why. And then once you make that decision, you got to stick with it through a couple sales cycles. Let's say it's a 90 day sales cycle, which is kind of a typical SaaS sales cycle. So give it a sales cycle or two, preferably to get it right. Because as Zach said, shit, it takes you two months sometimes to lock in and get the, the messaging right. Yep. You know, Is that what you see? You've been through this process. You're going through this process right now, Zach, without throwing anybody under the bus potentially. Do yeah. you see we'll, we'll, do you see this? Do you experience this? Yeah, yeah. We'll keep the names off the list, but uh I've been a part of other organizations that their ICP wasn't clearly defined right when they built the product. And I think when you build the product, you got to figure out that ICP right away because you're building the product to better fit that ICP. And so I've been a part of an organization that wanted to build this enterprise ICP. They hit that same exact snag that you saw. They reeled it back in. They started targeting SMB. They got some great traction, but now their customer base is not part of their original ICP that their product was defined for. And so now they start developing stuff for their product market fit, which is their SMB category, and started developing a product in that line. And then 12 months down the road, it's like, well, why don't we have enterprise business? Relatively simple. We don't have enterprise clients. We didn't put enough <laughs> effort to get after that ICP. And so it, it very much so defines the product just as much as it defines, you know, the category you're fitting within. Yeah, that's great. All right, Zach. So what else you want to ask? Go for it. Yeah. So this is one that I love asking some thought leaders in the space. How do you get a product to go from a nice to have to a need to have? If I look back, you know, years ago, I think about like systems like outreach, 
back in the day, it was like, hey, it's automated. It's going to create everything. It's going to make everything a little bit easier, sequence everything. People are like, well, you know, I got these email templates. They work. I can send them out manually. That was nice to have back in the day. You look at a sales organization today, if they don't have some sort of outbound engine like that, that just drives business in an automated fashion, they're going to fail. That's now a need to have. So how do you really take that product, define a market to the point where it's not only a nice to have, but now it's like a need to have within the infrastructure of a SaaS company? Let me punt this one over to Richard because I can see <laughs> I can see his gears yeah. spinning right um, now. <clears throat> first of all, your TAM's got to be big enough. You got to have enough users, right? Um, and you've got to be able to differentiate very specifically. So, you know, the outreaches and the sales lofts of the world, um, you know, they both came along and in some cases they did the same thing. So if you're early enough in the space, you can be the probably the first three or four of the competitors, but you also have to have a big TAM. So for example, when you sell to a marketing department or a sales team or even an HR team or an engineering team for different, for different pieces, um, it, it's gotta have to have multiple users. Right. So it can't just be for the CMO. It can't just be for the CRO in my mind. Um, and then it's got to be massively tactical. It's got to be that. And, and the way you position it, some of this is positioning. It's not how much time do you save? It's what did you do with that extra time? Right. So, you know, for something like an outreach, who's a sponsor. So we love them um, by all means, you know, it can, you can get sucked into the rabbit hole of something like outreach if you're not careful. So there's gotta be a lot of training around it so that it becomes an effective solution and you have to define what effective means, right? Being more efficient and effective are terrible, terrible differentiators. But you have to then go back and paint the picture of that effectiveness. Oh, yes, it may take you more time to do this. However, fewer things slip through the cracks or, because of this, you know, in two or three weeks, once you have your, uh, your sequence set up, uh, your team's now going to be able to make, you know, eight more phone calls a day, right? Or you're going to have to sort of paint that whole picture. Um, and I also think, too, you've got to get them into the visualization of post-onboarding, right? Once they can see that picture, because it takes a month, right? Like you bring a rep in and teach them how to use outreach, Oh my God, how long is that going to take? Sendoso? Like it takes a while. They have to just be repetitive with it, right? Um, so for me, that's the first piece. And the second thing is you have to keep talking to your customers. What else do you want this to do? What else do you want this to do? What else, what else, what else, what else, what else? Um, so that for me is, that's the tactical approach to it. And I'll pull on one of those threads too, because I think a lot of companies tend to have a very narrow niche messaging when they first start out, like, Hey, we're trying to solve X, but then when they start looking at it, it's not only how can we make it stickier with the company, but how can we drive further, you know, value for our clients. And so companies tend to go a little broader and they lose that like specific niche that they found success with. So like when you're looking at building out a product, you get in the door with one, how do you continue to outline that path forward where it's not necessarily getting out of this specific path that you're looking to develop in, but still create some broader value so you can kind of, you know, drive adoption, drive stickiness and, you know, end value for those clients that you're working with. I think that's a, that's a great question. And an interesting conversation would be who's responsible for doing that. Right. Yep. The CEO or the VP of sales. 
I will, I'll, I'll jump in on a couple of things on that too, because it's also the cross sell upsell mm -hmm. opportunity. This mm -hmm. goes back to what I said, you got to keep talking to your clients. So, and asking them, well, what else would you want? What other things are going on? And you need to go to your best clients, right? The ones who you have the best relationships with and, or create the, maybe you don't have relationships. Maybe you're still early and it's like, Hey, we need to do a, a round table session, you know, and get some customer advisory boards and those kinds of things. Um, and sometimes it's just the rep asking, right? A good customer success rep will ask these questions. Maybe it's head of customer success. One thing I've noticed is um, you definitely stay focused on what you do. And oftentimes the other things will find you somehow, some way. And that's when you have to pay attention, right? So when Scott and I started the podcast, we were like, all right, let's just do this. We, you know, we're just trying to brand ourselves and brand the event. And was it six months in, someone called and said, you know, hey, we'll pay you guys a thousand bucks to mention us on your podcast, to sponsor your podcast. And we're like, sweet, thousand dollars, right? We make 500 bucks to do something we're already doing. And I, I started doing some research and I talked to some friends who do podcasts and they were like telling me like the amount of money they make. And I call Scott and I'm like, dude, like, you're not going to believe this. And Scott was in complete disbelief. He was like, no way. Shocked. Yeah, totally shocked. Yeah, totally shocked. And now we're there. And it's so, but the stuff finds you sometimes. Now, if you're in a high growth startup, you can't wait for that to happen. But I do think you try, one of the things I encourage people to do is you try to pick verticals if you can. So for example, Zach, with what you guys do with demos, I would say you pick three, maybe four verticals where you know demos are heavy and you don't go to other demos. You don't go to the insurance world. You don't go to agriculture. You don't do all that stuff. You go own those three or four categories. And then after you've done that for a year and you've closed business and you've started to upsell and cross sell, then you can start to easily formulate well, what's the next vertical? And you kind of go one at a time at that point. Oftentimes within that year though, other things will start to come to you. It'll just sort of happen, but own your shit and know it better than anything, right? There's a reason some pitchers aren't great at throwing curveballs. They're just not. So they focus on sliders or, you know, uh, you know, a fastball or, you know, it's kind of like the knuckleballers, the knuckleball, you know, there's not any, is anybody doing knuckleballs anymore, Scott? Very rare. Maybe there's yeah. one or two. Yeah. But it's like, those guys never try to throw a fastball or a curveball. Because oh, right? they know. can only throw like 82 miles per hour and it goes 420 feet. Right. So uh, anyway, I'm going to stop now and let Scott jump in or Zach, tell me if I'm, you know. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, no, I think you're going in the right direction here. I, I think it's interesting because I, startups especially they need to be relatively concrete in the direction that they're going because back to our previous conversation if you're not you tend to get bounced off in this direction that isn't necessarily the icp that you want to be in or the product market fit that you want to be in so i think there is a balance to be had there between being confident in the direction your company is going but also listening and kind of having a little bit of flex to that roadmap to make sure that you're listening to feedback and not just listening to what you think you know the think industry that's right. that you're selling into is right yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the right attitude and the and the right uh right approach to it. Yeah, you kind of go deep before you go wide. Yeah, yes, that's probably one. I, a lot I of people try to do that. A lot of people screw that up and try to go wide. Yes, way too fast. Yep, yep. Because particularly when you're early, uh, everybody wants to know. Well, who else have you done this with? 
right? And, and, you know, if you focused on the travel industry and the entertainment industry, then the insurance company wants to talk to you. They don't care what you've done with travel, right? Even though the pain is the same, right? I, you know, I could talk to Coke and sell, be a sales trainer for Coca-Cola. Pepsi could call me and say, Hey, Richard, we want you to do sales training. Who else have you worked with in the food and beverage space? And I'd be like Coke. And they'd be like, yeah, we're nothing like Coca-Cola. Like, you know, like that's, you know, they will try to commoditize you into their special snowflake uniqueness. Uh, but that's how I see it. Uh, I, I think that also goes back to our previous conversation. It's not just company wide. If a company has multiple product lines, you're not going in saying, hey, here's eight different products that I think all will benefit you. It's like you're finding the best fit, the best pain point, and you're taking that one product as your point of entry. From there, you can expand out. But I think a lot of reps that I've managed in the past, when we have multiple product lines, it's like they're asking 50 different discovery questions to fit all eight different product lines versus like 10 really damn good questions about their one specific product fit. And I think a lot of people have kind of made that misstep. I, I think, yeah. I'd, I'd love, I think that's a great topic that would be fun to talk about. Cause I've always wondered how does an IBM go in and sell 20,000 things, right? Like, well, you know, I, what they don't do is get you on the phone and say, okay, Richard, there's 20,000 different <laughs> things that we do. Let me talk to you about all 20,000 of those. And you let me know which one's best. Yeah. I just think it's interesting, right? Because it like, you know, GE general electric has the same thing. I've done some work with them and it's interesting about how do you go into that account? How do you do it? Then how do you upsell it and cross sell it? And it's something that's not really talked about. Like we don't, you know, it, it's very interesting, uh, but I also think it's because of the worlds we swim in, but um, well, cool. Uh, yeah. What else, Zach? Well, I mean, all of this is pretty early stage. I, I would, I think we just kick it and continue down later stage. So now that we've, you know, found our product market fit, we've found our ICP, we have some defined messaging. You all have seen companies, you've scaled companies, you know, when people are in that hyper growth mode, probably like post series A, they're starting to scale up their team like three X over 12 months. Where do you all, you know, focus the infrastructure around that scalability and like consistency of process? Because obviously when you scale that quickly, there's a huge risk as far as like dropping off. People aren't asking the right questions. We're not even touching the right ICP. You know, where do you focus your efforts when you're looking at that like post series A hyper growth company? That's a total Scott Lee's question. Well, the, the first thing you do is you invest in sales ops slash rev ops as soon as humanly possible. I mean, you, you should be doing that almost right from the jump if possible. So they're whole, helping you hold the whole organization accountable to doing things in this systematic, organized way. So you don't just have chaos and 14 reps doing things 14 different ways, right? They're responsible for the tooling. They're responsible for, you know, the leads that are uh, being put into the CRM, helping make sure that that information is being enriched and, and the hygiene of it is, is good making sure that you're looking at the right data and not just showing you the data, but also surfacing insights from the data and putting those in front of you. So example, you know, somebody might say, Hey, here's all of our, uh, you know, activity metrics for the, the last couple months. Well, that's great. That requires me as a sales leader now to go review everything. And I have limited time. If a sales ops person comes to me and says, Here's all the data from our activity for the last couple uh, months. Here's what I noticed. Bullet point A, bullet point B, bullet point C. Here's what I would suggest we do. 
bullet point one, bullet point two, bullet point three, that is infinitely more helpful, right? So yeah. you're asking what people do, where do they invest? You invest in ops early on. Secondly, you've got to invest in talented people that will help you scale. They're those people who are very, very good as an individual contributor to like dig a ditch in the very beginning, right? But once you get to, let's call it 10 salespeople, 12 salespeople, you as that first head of sales, you no longer really have the ability to manage all of those people properly. You've got executive duties. You've got an ops person reporting to you. You've got to be recruiting still. You're doing all these things, right? How am I supposed to manage everybody effectively, coach, train them effectively? So the initial couple sales managers, the, a level between you and the AEs become critically important. And it, it can make or break, you know, it's the difference between making or breaking you and how well you scale because they have to be an extension of you. They have to be able to do as well, if not better, some of the uh, roles that you were playing. And you have to be able to delegate off some of these things and trust that they get done and get done well. Those, those yeah, two I, things, I think, I, are critical. Yeah, I think that plays right into it. I mean, I'll, I'll take a hit on my own side. Uh, when I took over the last company, I didn't do a good enough job documenting. Back to what you said, you write down everything. Yep. You know, I had figured out this process. I was balancing, you know, contributing life versus leadership and trying to establish that infrastructure. And I think I lost focus on creating that infrastructure for scalability. I was doing all this work. I was finding the right fit. I was finding what to say and when to say it, but it wasn't heavily documented. You know, going back to your point about data, if you have data as your baseline, as you're continuing to scale a company, when you change one thing and the data changes, it's very easy to kind of relate that back to what actually happened versus this like qualitative, like, oh, I think this is working. I yeah. think that works. Like the faster I think you can document and have that data at your back, the better off you're going to be in the long term. But that plays back towards your sales ops and sales reps thing. Yeah. So you didn't document the stuff. Where was the information housed? Just in your brain? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So to give you an idea, when I took over my last company, they were doing lead sheets. They had pen and paper things popping up around the desk. So it helped, it helped to implement Salesforce. There's a lot of moving points, things like that. But you know, while I was doing that, I was also on the sales side and I wasn't taking the time on the backside of the sales end to like focus on documentation and how I was doing specific things. And it created a mountain of work for me six months down the road when I had a team of 10 underneath me. And so I think I could have definitely done a better job, you know, creating those efficiencies early on and making sure that that process was defined. Yep. Yeah. I love and this. So now, and so now as you move forward in your current org, mm -hmm. you're learning from the previous mistake and presumably doing this stuff, documenting these things, right? Yeah. I, I think one thing I've learned that helps me personally as an IC and per professionally as like a coach is, before I go do something, I document what I think I'm going to do. Put out this like idea of what you're going to go try to do, what messaging you're going to test, what value you're trying to relate to, what you're trying to hook people with. And so I document it even before I start it. And so I have this living, breathing document while I'm actually doing the sales reps, yeah. getting through the process. I can make those small edits and those small tweaks. And it's not just this big heap of work. It's just a document that I'm making small edits to as I make those key learnings. Yeah. And what, what helped you 
realize the need for this switch? Did you have a conversation with somebody one day and they were like, listen, Zach, you're an idiot. You're doing this all wrong. This is what you got to do. Did you, did you read? Tried to call you, Scott. That's what happened. He tried to call you and you blew him off. (laughs) Blew him off like an asshole. I just want to, I just want to know. I think it's important because I think I'm guessing here, but you know, a lot of the times when I say to people, you know, how come you didn't document any of this kind of stuff, you know, in this gig or your last gig, the answer is, well, I didn't know that I was supposed to. No one ever, no one ever told me. So I'm just curious, like where you learned and, or where you heard, you know, to make this adjustment. Yeah. I, I think a lot of early stage startups, you tend to get into that like firefighter mentality, like, damn, there's a blaze over here. I need to go focus on this. I need to go focus on that. And so that was my day to day for two years. And so I got to the point where I was very good at managing fires, but there was no documentation on how I managed those fires. And yeah. so when my previous company got acquired, we went from a small mom and pop shop that, you know, we got up to 11 million in ARR it was a pretty good shop, but we went from this mom and pop shop to a company that was now owned by a public company. And so all of their business operations, people started coming in and saying, how do you do what you do? And I realized I didn't have any of that documented anywhere. And just yeah, trying you to have an answer, it, right? No, and trying to think of it yeah. when you're like, well, how do you do everything between A and Z? It's like, damn, where do I start? Versus like, hey, this is how I'm going to prospect. This is yeah. how you're going to discover. This is how you're going to do yeah. X, Y, and Z. It it's so important easier. for how so important for how we train people too. Like imagine you have nothing documented whatsoever and you move out of this role and somebody new comes in, how do they learn what to do? What's been working? What's not? You have to download all that stuff. You're going to have to spend so much time with them as opposed to you say, Hey, here's all this stuff on paper. Here's all the material that I've created. Right. I'm still available to talk to you, but like, start with this. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Makes an absolute world of difference. So, uh, listen, we, we normally, end every show by saying, Hey, how can we be helpful to you? Is there any questions you have for us? But we've kind of spent the majority of the show, you know, fielding questions from, from you. So we're going to flip the script now and we're going to ask you a question and that's how we'll kind of end the show. We want to thank Sendoso Scratchpad, and outreach for sponsoring this and every episode of the Surfing Tales podcast. So my question to you, Zach is, how do you decide whom to reach out to, to try to seek advice? Because there's a lot of people out there that offer, you know, up advice, uh, that sell advice. How do you, as a, let's say, consumer of advice, how do you sort out, well, I should reach out to Scott or I should reach out to Richard and I should not reach out to these people. How are you making that kind of decision and distinction? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of twofold. First of which is relating to the messaging, you know, how the person's thought process is. If it's something that I see and I instantly relate to, it's a conversation that I want to have. I think the harder part of that conversation is seeing through the crap, seeing through the smoke screen that a lot of people put out there saying, we're going to do this, we're going to help you do. It's just a whole bunch of canned sequences posts that go out. There's zero engagement. It's all about that self-development. You know, when I'm looking for somebody to take advice from, it's not just somebody who gives advice, but also listens to advice and interacts with the people that they're talking with. So it's not just saying a comment and then going on to your next thought process. It's actually engaging with the people going deep into that conversation. And I think, you know, hats off to you. I'd see you on LinkedIn. It's not just generalized posts. It's really thought and provoking engagement and then responding back to those engagements as well. 
How do you, uh, and this, this might be more of a Richard issue than the two of you. I don't even know why my video went off, Scott. You didn't even tell me. Usually you tell me and I'm on mute. But um, how do you decide what you want to ask? Or maybe even better, how do you, how do you, do you ever have the challenge of getting over yourself to say, oh, shoot, I should know this. Now I need to go ask somebody this. And maybe you feel uncomfortable doing that right? Like that was, for me, that was a huge growth problem. And I think limited my career um, in some ways. I've gotten better at it. But do you have that challenge? And maybe you don't, maybe you don't, I don't know. It was a hard fought lesson. (laughs) Um, Back as an individual contributor, you know, I thought there wasn't anything that I didn't know. And that was like the biggest downfall of any individual contributor is too much success where they don't learn how to listen. I think I really you know, took my lashings when I moved into a leadership role, because there's a lot that I don't know. And I think as, you know, the industry continues to evolve, people always have to learn. And so I think understanding what you know, and really realizing what, but what was, what slapped you in the face that said, okay, stop, <laughs> stop thinking, you know, it all Zach, what was yeah, your realization? It was when I was trying to teach reps, how to work the best way that I worked. And reps all don't work the same way. And so I told all these people, this is exactly how you do it. Step one, two, three, four. But all these reps learn differently. They have different sales personas that they like kind of morph into. And so I learned that my sales approach didn't work for everybody else. And so trying to step back, learn how other people sell, and then take this like group message of all the learnings and kind of push that back out. But that's really where I learned, like, I don't know all the sales strategies. I don't know all the methodologies. I don't know the best way to sell to specific people. And listening is really kind of the best path forward for me there. That's awesome. That's really good. I think, I think we can all relate to that. Um, except for Scott, Scott's perfect. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, so except, except we wants to make sure he's, you know, needs some humanity. Hey, Richard, how do I be more polite and not hate? That's you? right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So. Teach me patience, Richard. <laughs> awesome. Zach, this has been all like, seriously, this thing flew by great questions. Like I'm sitting here going, this whole thing could become an ebook of like six questions you should be asking um, that I, I, I love. And I love Scott. Thank you for sort of getting creative and going, oh, here, do a podcast. So for example, yeah. Zach, we were saying earlier, I said earlier, Scott and I have a podcast. We have a normal process. We normally do it this way. You came in and did it this way. And now Scott and I've chatted offline of like, wow, we should do more of these pick the brain things. It's very interesting, right? And so this new opportunity found us as opposed to us sticking to our vertical. So. Yeah, no, I think the infrastructure here was fun. I mean, I appreciate you guys being so open to all my million questions that I have built sure. up over here. And it, it was definitely a thought-provoking conversation. If folks want to get a hold of you, Zach, just because they like the fact that you're, you're thinking this way and they want to bounce ideas, where, where, what's the easiest way to find you? Yeah, you can just uh, find me on LinkedIn or feel free to shoot over an email. It's just Zach, Z-A-C, at gondola.ai. There you go, Zach at gondola.ai. All right, well, Zach, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, Scott, it was a pleasure getting a chance to finally meet with you guys. And uh, Yeah, you too. Looking forward to continuing to listen to the podcast here. All right, we'll chat soon. All right, thanks, guys.